Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. How are you? Um, boy, I started off my sermon with an um. I, I apologize for that. I take that back. Ums are bad words. Um, that one's for free. You're welcome. There's something going on this morning. It is clear that the Holy Spirit is moving. Very, very clear. And I can tell you when the Holy Spirit moves, the enemy moves. And he is moving. So before we start today, we need to have a talk. While so much prep goes into Sunday morning, I want our enemy to know that this is not about performance. Thankfully, when you really look at the root of what we do here, it is not about performance. Yes, we want to have a great service. Yes, we want to have great music. Yes, we want to have a response. Yes, we want to have great videos and stages and all that. But I can tell you that our heart is not in the performance. It is not. And I want our enemy to know that. So it is easy to get lost in the pursuit of Sunday morning perfection. Am I wrong? So it's easy to lose sight of or forget the purpose. Not saying that it is happening here, but if we're honest with ourselves, that thought hovers over us. It hovers over me with our hopes of getting amens and our fear of failure. Church, there's a spiritual battle for your soul here today. This is not a cry for accolades or applause. I'm being dead serious. I mean, dead serious. So I'm convinced of this. If you could see the spiritual battle marks on your leaders here, on everybody that does something into putting this Sunday morning together, you will see bloody men and women. You will see them covered in bruises. This is a wake-up call. I have never felt um, an impression on me like I have today, this morning, not at any of the prep, but this morning from the moment that I got up, that there is a young man here that needs the Lord. There is a young man here that doesn't realize the struggle, the fight that's going over his soul this morning. 
If you don't respond to where it's clear today, I'm okay with that because I'm not looking for my glory. I'm not looking for any praise or accolades. I promise you, we are here fighting for your soul. This is a wake-up call. So I was having these thoughts, like all of this that I just spoke of to you this morning came to me like this morning. And so what I want to do is I want to read the portion of Scripture that describes the armor of God. And guys, this is not me reading something for the sake of reading something. This is me uh, hopefully doing this for myself and for you. Guys, we need to put on the armor of God because we are in a war. So let's read this. This is from Ephesians 6. There's no slides because this came this morning, but just, just listen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to pause there for just a second. What you have to realize is every single piece of this, uh, this armor that you're putting on is not a piece of armor, it is Jesus. Every single piece. So I say it again. Having fastened on the belt of truth, Jesus is the truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Jesus is righteousness. And as for your shoe and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, Jesus is the gospel. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Faith is in Jesus. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Jesus is salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Church, Jesus is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. God, we are here to worship you. Jesus, you are our king and you are our savior. You are our reason. Holy Spirit, we invite you here today. Fill this place. Church, pray with me. Father, there is a spiritual war going on. Lord, and where the spirit moves, Satan does also. His countermeasures, however, can do nothing against you. It can do nothing to hinder you. I do believe that we can prohibit the Spirit from doing His work. So God, I ask that you would help remove us from the spotlight. Please put yourself in it. God, I pray that you command all evil to steer clear of this place this morning so that your work may not be hindered. God, we pray this in Jesus' name.
Uh, that was not my intro. I promise. This is my intro. So, during the construction of the house, and, and Cody, I, I thought about you like this whole time. During the construction of a house, like, as it begins to rise, it, it's, it's amazing how fast it goes. The walls go up, the rafters go up, and forgive me if I say any of this stuff incorrectly, but because I'm, I'm not a carpenter. Cody kind of is, kind of. Um, there it is again. But in the construction of a house, like, it is amazing how fast it goes up. Now, there will be some small details as this thing is really uh, tailored to your, your needs, but there's something that goes into a house that you don't necessarily see, and it is the time that is patiently invested in what? Huh? Planning. The foundation. So the foundation is carefully planned and measured, then is built slowly to ensure that it is precise, square, and true. And when this foundation is constructed, building begins. Church, Romans, is the foundation of our faith. So it's fine that we're going to spend the amount of time that we're going to be in this. It's perfectly fine. But without spending the time on the foundation of your faith, you will have a building that is not square. You will have a building that is not precise, true, or level. So I have a question. When you do have a house that's built on a jacked foundation, what is going to happen to it when the storms come? What is going to happen? With that in mind, what is going to happen to your faith when it has a foundation built on the sand? What is going to happen when the tides rise and the storms come? It is intentional that we're going through Romans together. Because church, like together, we are going to build this foundation of our faith so that we can see it rise. So in, in prep for this, I, uh, I stumbled on something that that's, was really encouraging to me, and it's actually uh, Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary in the book of Romans. And he says this, say, this letter is truly the most important piece of the New Testament. It is the purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. <laughs> that is so true with the verses I have today. <laughs> as followers of Christ, his word, regardless of how encouraging or in your face calling you out, as a true follower of Christ, it is sweet in your mouth. But to those who do not know Jesus, it is something that you do not want to hear. It's like nails on a chalkboard, and I can tell you today it will be labeled as hate speech. Hmm. So, thankfully today I have, I have nothing lighthearted. Um, I have something very heavy. 
This is bucket number two of what we're getting into. So Romans is, uh, you could break it all down. It goes into six buckets. Uh, Cody, like, hit a home run closing the first, so we're starting the second. So the first bucket was this. It was Paul's greetings, his blessings. It was the man, the mission, and the message. As we go into bucket uh, number two, it is the wrath of God, the saints and the ain'ts. So he transitions from the righteousness of God to the wrath of God. And again, remember, as a follower of Christ, while these words may be hard to hear, it is sobering, but it is sweet. So, but it is important that we grasp the connection between this bucket, the wrath of God, and the last bucket, the righteousness of God. So in Romans 1, 16 through 20, which will be 17 through 20 today. Paul develops an argument of sustained logic, and he refers successively to the power of God, the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, and then the glory of God in creation. In addition, each statement he makes is linked to the preceding one to clarify we could read this argument of Paul in a dialogue like this. Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why not, Paul? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But how, Paul? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is God's way of justifying sinners. But why is that necessary, Paul? Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But how have people suppressed the truth, Paul? Because what may be known about God is plain to them. Yes, indeed. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. Okay, so before we read today's verses, I want you to listen to this. There's this guy, a Scottish uh, theologian, Sinclair Ferguson. And I actually had to look it up to make sure this is actually fairly current, uh, not old. But he reported this story. A few years ago, a campus ministry group in one of the larger universities in the UK, the United Kingdom, was seeking to reach students with the truth of the gospel. So they printed out the words of Romans 1, 18 through 32, in a contemporary format with no verse or numbers or anything. They did not specify the source. It was simply written as if these words were composed today. Soon after the documents were distributed, the leaders were called of the ministry to go before the university authorities. The students were told in no certain terms that they would be censored for their offensiveness. And the authorities demanded that the students produce the author of this offensive piece of writing. This is a portion of what they printed. Uh, Go ahead and throw up Romans 1. And I said 17 earlier. We're doing 18 through 20 today. I apologize. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is not talking about certain people. This is not talking about certain ethnicities. This is talking about all men, all mankind. The evidence of God has been made plain to see so that when you stand before him, you will have no excuse. That's another one of my ticks. I do this with my mouth like I'm thinking. I promise you, I'm, I'm sorry. The ums and the mouth covering. So Paul... So as I'm studying, like I'm thinking this. I was like, okay, so who is Paul? Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any other author, right? Not only that, Paul wrote more about grace in any of the New Testament than anyone else. So I've got a question. Why is it that he switches from light to dark, from gospel to wrath? Why are you telling this now, Paul? Like, dude, why so dark? And Adam and I were having a conversation, and this came to him. You can't understand the good news of God until you understand the bad news of sin. I'll say that again. You can't understand the good news of God until you understand the bad news of sin. Houston, we have a problem. We, as men and women, we have a problem. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for exposing the problem that we have. Thank you for your love and kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace. You are not a vengeful, angry God. You are a God that is the very definition of love. But God, you have chose brave men and brave women to speak on your behalf so that we, uh, the hearers, might understand. Not just your wrath, but the reason for it and the good that will come from it. God, I pray that today Eyes will be opened. I pray that hearts would be softened so that your message from your word might be received today. Lord, as a man, we all want to seem tough. It's just just in our makeup. But how manly would it be to stand up and surrender to you than it would be just to stand your ground. God, do something awesome here today. I know that you want to. I know that you're going to. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so 
as we look at these three verses, like what I really want to do is I really want to break these dudes down, and I want to really look at the way that Paul has constructed these things so that hopefully as we read through these, you will understand the purpose for it. So these three verses can be broken down into two topics, and this is just the way that I see it. Uh, you can break it down in others as well, but it's quite obvious that first topic is God's wrath. And the second, I believe, is the reason for it. So Paul says what's coming, and then he says why. So in verse 18, for the wrath of God. So this begs the question, why, what, what is the wrath of God? So the wrath of God is just. It has become common for many to argue that the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster that is by no means worthy of worship. And I can tell you, like as you read through the Old Testament, it, it's clear that you can see it. I know that there was one family. I mean, okay. So I was asking for a show of hands, but I'm not going to. It, in your mind, if you are a follower of Christ, raise your hand. Don't, don't raise your hands. Okay, so you've got your right hand up. With your left hand, if you have ever made a mistake as a believer, please, don't, don't show your hands, raise your other hand. Well, did you know that there's a story in the Old Testament where they're, they're, everybody's traveling and all, and there was this one family that sinned? And what did God do? Well, he caused the ground to open up and swallow the whole family. Does that sound like a loving God? Does it? So, it's become common for many to argue that the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster and that is by no means worthy of worship. However, biblical authors have no such problem. In fact, God's wrath is said to be in perfect accord with his justice. Paul writes, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is not something that he wants to do. This is something he should be required to do. God's wrath then in its proportion to human sinfulness. In Proverbs, it also says, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he, and will he not repay man according to his work? J.I. Packer summarizes it this way, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It is a right and necessary reaction. So God's wrath is just. God's wrath is to be feared. God's wrath is to be feared because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's wrath is to be feared because we are justly condemned sinners apart from Christ, apart from Christ. God's wrath is to be feared because he is powerful enough to do what he promises. God's wrath is to be feared because God promises eternal punishment apart from Christ, apart from Christ. God's wrath is to be feared. Moving along, God's wrath is consistent. 
in the Old Testament and in the New. It is common to think of the Old Testament God as a mean, harsh, and wrath-filled, and the God of the New as kind, patient, and loving. Neither of these portraits truly represent the Scripture's teaching on the wrath of God because God's wrath is consistent. Here's a few examples. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked, Jeremiah, Old Testament. Another one from Old Testament, Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Moving to the new, this is actually one of the verses for today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And one more, it's from Revelation. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Isaiah gives a much better account, and I had it in my notes, but we were going to be too long, so I took it out. I encourage you to read it. This wrath is coming if you are apart from Christ. Continuing, God's wrath is his love and action against sin. So I mentioned it earlier, like God is love. God is the definition of love. And God does all things for his glory. So what he does, and he rules in such a way that he brings himself glory. This means that God must act justly and judge sin. Otherwise, God would not be God. God's glory and holiness motivate his wrath against sin. God is a holy, a just, and a righteous God that is full of loving kindness, and it is the sin that separates us from him. Because of God's love, wrath must come to deal justly with sin and ultimately bring it to an end. This is warming to the heart of his children and bitter to the taste to those that reject him. It is, after all, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God's wrath is his love in action. And this is my, this is my favorite part. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. This is the ultimate good news. Christ Jesus came to the world so that he might save sinners. Because of Christ, God can rightly call those who were once sinners justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means that you can stand before a holy God just as if you have never sinned or ever will. You stand justified before the Father. You stand as a righteous saint before the Father because God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. So, in saving us from his own wrath, he saves us from his wrath. God has done what we could not do, and he has done what we do not deserve. So I really like this, this little quote here, and, and I'm going to keep it like old school, so bear with me. It sounds a little King's Jamie. Um, 
because there are new renditions of this song, but I'm going to read you. This is uh, uh, Charles Wesley. He rejoiced in this good news. And and bear with me because I don't speak this way, but here we go. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? That you, my God, should die for me. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Do you really think that the second person of the Trinity wanted to step out of perfection, out of paradise, to come here and live this life? Knowing that he was born to die, not just to die in his sleep, but to die a horrible death. Do you think that he wanted to do that? Of course not. But do you think that because of his love for us, that he was 100% willing? Yes. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. I'm not crying. I have an itch. Boy, I almost did. I'm going to tell you a little snap. No, I'm not. Jesus, I'm sorry. Okay, so we need to understand that God's wrath is not like ours. So our anger can be righteous or unrighteous. Ours is vain. <laughs> that the truth. An emotional, irrational, uncontrollable vanity, animosity. It's a desire for revenge. God, God's anger is free of all of those ingredients. It is holy and it is just. So Paul here in this verse isn't saying that God is annoyed or irritated, but that God's anger is an anger of passion and paroxysm of rage and fury. So consider this. (laughs) Consider that there's a judge sitting on a bench or whatever those things are called, and he doesn't hate evil. How good of a judge is he going to be? So it's perfectly normal for a holy God to be moved to anger against evil. Okay, moving along in verse 18. So this wrath is revealed from heaven. Revealed, I just did it, sorry. So if you've been around me very long, you know that I've got ADD. Um, It's pretty bad. As uh, Summer so gracefully pointed out, it's uh, probably worse in our house. Uh, that was awesome. <laughs> but as I'm looking at something, like, my brain just starts spider webbing. And so when I hear certain things, I think about certain things. So this wrath is revealed from heaven. So what my brain does is when I see revealed, I think reveal. Reveal is revelation, and I know that that rhema is revealed truth, which that's not really the case here, but um, the revealed here is apocalypto, 
<laughs> and I think about like when God's wrath is really coming, and I don't know why I'm smiling, but I am, but all these apocalypse kind of movies that you're seeing, like it is gonna be like that. Now there is a wrath in the here and now, but there is a, a wrath that is coming that will be revealed from heaven. And it will be like that. So Jesus has something that is hidden. And at the right time, he unveils it. He apocalyptos it. Like he is going to reveal it. So the revelation of his wrath is something that is stored up, something that is coming. And what we have to realize is this is just not wrath that he just wants to minister. What, he, what it is is this wrath that he has is a reaction to an action. He is countering that thing for us. So this wrath is revealed from heaven. Moving along. So this wrath revealed from heaven is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this wrath of God is coming. And we can't yet comprehend the magnitude of it. We can read about it. And to be quite honest, unless we're going through it, I, just, I really don't think that we can fully understand what it's going to be like. But God is angry with at least two things. One is all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Or you can look at it in this way. All ungodliness is belief, and the unrighteousness of man is behavior. So the ungodliness, God is angry with it, blasphemous irreverence. It is the attempt to get rid of God. Unrighteousness, behavior, God is angry with it. So, so these, these two categories contain a multitude of sins, but he's not talking about that right here. This is the sin that's... Uh, stokes God's wrath against all humanity, it's of men. But which men are we talking about here? We're talking about them all. There's actually a list coming soon uh, of these sins, um, and I thought about plugging those in here, but I'm not going to. And there's other lists, though, uh, variant sins of the Bible that we need to know that we are all guilty just in different ways. There's no safe ground without Christ. Hear me, church. You will not find safety in your self-made religion. You will not find safety in man-made religion. You will not find safety in your good deeds. People, there is no neutral ground with Christ. (laughs) You are either a saint or you're an ain't. There is no in-between. Safety, security, salvation come from Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Guys, this wrath is coming. Moving along. So this revealed wrath against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress means to prevent someone from using their power or to repress or put into detention. God's truth is like a spring that we try to force down, and it's, it resists, and despite our best efforts to hold it down, 
we can never stop it because it is always pushing back and it will erupt. God is truth. Truth comes from him. Truth is not subjective. So we suppress the truth. Our problem is not mental, that we don't know right from wrong, so we don't know what to do. Our problem is moral. We know what is right and wrong. We just don't like it, so we don't do it. Ain't that the truth? So now we're going to shift from God's wrath to the reason for it. Let's read, uh, we'll start with 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So Paul isn't explicitly talking about the truth of the Bible, but here is the truth of creation that manifests God to us. The knowledge God shows us about himself isn't for the elite or intellectual. It's not obscure or hidden, and it's not hard to find. You just need to look around. It's clear the evidence of God is written all over creation plainly so everyone can see. Uh, I got this from a friend. Um, <laughs> this is pretty awesome. Okay, so, so, so picture this, if you will. So God is a teacher. So because of that, we can't say that the student didn't learn because the teacher didn't teach well in this case. So God shows it to everyone. <laughs> in the Greek, agnosis means without knowledge. The atheist says there is no God. The agnostic says, I don't know if there is a God. I'm, I, am, I am agnosis. I am without sufficient knowledge to make a decision from this. Incidentally, the Latin word for agnosis is ignoramus. <laughs> I borrowed that. That's not mine. But that was good enough to be here. Thankfully, we have to laugh about something. All right. So back to the dark. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I feel like? I feel like I'm stuck out in the ocean and I can't see land anywhere. And it's not that, it's not that the, the waves are up. I mean, I'm just out there, man. Um, I'm just trying to tread water. And I feel like the surface is right here dealing with all this dark stuff. And I just went, <gasps> just came with this. I'm back underwater. Here we go. <laughs> I apologize for me. Okay, so the atheist and agnostic's problem isn't that they don't know that God exists. Their problem is that they despise the God that they know exists. Let that sink in. The problem is that they despise the God that they know exists. It is not intellectual. It is moral. They hate God and his truth. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. God is the truth. 
he will remain, <laughs> whether we like it or not. The evidence of God's glory comes from revelation, not speculation. So it's important that we see this knowledge of God that's plainly known comes from God as revelation. It is not from man's speculation because God has shown it to them. So revelation is from God. It is based on the truth. It is God's word to man and it is unchanging. It is revelation. Speculation is this. It is from man, which means it is flawed. It is based on tradition. It's man's opinions about God, and it is always changing. So I say again, it is important that we see this knowledge of God that's plainly known. It comes from God as, revel as revelation, and it is not from man's speculation. So we'll go to verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Uh, once upon a time, there was a store that everyone could go to. That they, it doesn't matter what product they picked up, but what they could do, what they could do is they could take that thing and look underneath and look, by, look for the made-by stamp that was on it. And at this one store, every single one, it would, it would say, made by the USA. Every single one. So years pass and things change. And the stuff that you now buy when you flip it over, holding to see made in the USA, may be replaced by made in China or some other far-off country. So though world powers rise and fall, though generations come and go, though manufacturing giants change continents, from the beginning, creation has a made-by stamp on it. All of it has this stamp, made by God. Everything. And it is not so it's the intellectuals or the thinkers that have to look at something and say, oh, well, you know, if I really look at that, yeah, I can, I can see uh, um, evidence of the creator there. No, he has made it plain to all. So what I want to do, there's a few slides that we're going to put up, and I want you to see these things. And if you haven't ever seen these before, it's actually pretty awesome, and I'll just describe it just real quick. So go ahead with those if we're ready. Okay, so first, we have outer space and we have a human. On the left, we have the helix nebula, and on the right, we have the human eye. Made by God. Next slide, please. On the left, we have the death of a star, and on the right, we have a birth of a cell. Stamped, made by God. Next. On the left, we have human DNA, and on the right, we have the shape of a double helix nebula. Do you see these things, church? Made by God, one more. On the left, we have the shape of the universe, 
And on the right, we have the shape of a brain cell. The invisible attributes of God have been plainly known to all men. I don't have a slide for this, but think about this. Think about the life cycle of a plant. So a plant produces a seed. And what that seed does is that seed withholds all of the ingredients that is required for new life. And so when that seed is planted and that new plant begins to grow, do you know what the seed does? The seed dies in the process so that new life may come. Does that sound familiar? Think about this. The caterpillar. I mean, that's, that's a pretty elementary one. But you have some ugly, squishy, hundred-legged worm thing that will go into a cocoon, and it will emerge a completely different creation. I could go on and on, but throughout all of creation, you turn that thing upside down, and it says, made by God. Made by God. So, finishing up, they are without excuse. The evidence of God in creation is everywhere. It is plain to see. And if you will just take a minute to look, you'll see it. And no one, when they stand before him, will be able to deny his existence. Wrath is coming. So it's revealing is twofold. Its consequence will affect you in the here and the now, in the here and now, and in the end of days. God's wrath is not wild, is not a wild emotional outburst, because he is slow to anger, but he does not wink at sin. God's wrath is a righteous wrath, and his anger is a holy anger. We should tremble at his anger and be thankful for the Savior. Although God will inflict his wrath on the last day once and for all, there is a working of God's wrath in the events of history. God hands people over to their sin and its consequences, and this judgment is a foretaste of the ultimate judgment to come. Know this, sin leads to misery, not to fulfillment. It is a foretaste of eternal misery. Today, church, we must be able to identify that sin as sin and through the power of Christ, flee from it. While the consequence of sin in the here and now may seem unbearable, church, the wrath of God is coming. And it will be unsurvivable. Again, I say, Safety, security, and salvation comes from Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. So, are you beginning to see why Paul switches from light to dark, from the gospel to wrath, and the importance of it? And do you truly understand the purpose so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up today's main point again, and it's this. You can't understand the good news of God until you understand the bad news of sin, 
but now Houston, you have a problem. You have a problem. So I'll read today's text again, but this time I'm going to make it personal. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against your ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by your unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to you, because God has shown it to you. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that you are without excuse. It is the time now to repent. And I am speaking to me too. Like we have got to stop worshiping ourselves. If you think about it, denying Christ... The reason you don't want to believe in because you are worshiping you. My biggest hurdle is when I worship me. You know, I can't for the life of me figure, I can't, I can't figure it out why so many people will not take just a minute to consider God. I can't grasp why somebody would not just stop to think with their eternity hanging in the balance. I mean, eternity is a long time to be wrong, right? So if we're gambling on our eternity, why not take just a little while to find out if this Christ who we're following or hope that we're following is the truth. Why, why will the world not do it? I can't figure it out. So to the non-churched, the underchurched, the overchurched, the wrong church, the hurt by the church, the name your excuse churched, eternity is a long time to get it wrong. It's a long time to get it wrong. Man, turn for your turn from yourself to him. Okay, so this is a call, not for yesterday, not for tomorrow, for now. So there's a, there's a thing going on right now, and I'm, I'm sure you guys know. Revival is happening. And it really makes you stop and think. about all of these true revival movements, it begins with something. And it's repentance. You know, repenting just means just to turn. To turn away from, if I'm going this way, man, I've got to stop. I've got to turn away. True revival begins with repentance. This is people Stopping to see God for who he is and he's holy. is people seeing themselves for who they are apart from him, which is unholy. So when this happens, like there's a great gospel collision. So if you want to experience God the Holy Spirit in revival where you're standing, then you've got to come to God the same way with a repentant heart. 
So, as I think about what's going on, I do not think that it's this. I do not think that somebody stumbled upon the presence of God working. But I think that what it began with was believers coming together with the same spirit, with the same heart, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And in so doing, the response from the Holy Spirit was he showed up. And while it's so easy, like in this world, to really put that in the back of your mind, man, I've got to, I've got to focus on my job today. I've got to focus on this today. I've got to focus on that today. Man, if we'll just stop and approach him with humbleness, with humility, and with repentance, and come together as a body of believers, the Holy Spirit will show up. You know, while uh, those who choose not to believe can suppress the truth, I also believe that we as the church can really suppress his movement. I really do. But, but as, I, as I see these videos and I see people waiting for a mile to get into just, I mean, let's be honest, it's just kind of an old traditional looking church building, nothing flashy about it. People waiting just to join. Like, this gave me a glimpse of our eternity. Just constantly, without stopping, worshiping the Father. And it's, it's not something out of duty, but just something out of, out of a reaction. We just can't help it, but just to praise. You have people driving miles and miles and miles just to go and worship. Because they've come to him with a heart that is repented. So I'm going to read this. This is one thing I want to read and I'm done. So there's this. Uh, there's this Old Testament account of this young king of Jerusalem. So this, this kid had not been taught God's word. And when he heard it for the first time, it wrecked him. He was already a good man. And he was already a good leader. But it's not the good that earns you a righteous position before the Father. It is not the good. the story of Josiah. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 32, 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, the court secretary to the temple of the Lord. He told him, Go to Hilkiah the high priest and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust the money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also, have them buy timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep of the count of the money they received, for they are honest and trustworthy men. So the temple had gone into ruins, and righteous King Josiah comes. He's like, we need to rebuild this thing. 
Hilkiah the high priest that said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan and he read it. Now, mind you, like this book was hidden. Their Bible was hidden. Nobody knew about it. Nobody knew its words. Shaphan went to the king and reported, your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and the supervisors in the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So he read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbar, Shaphan, and the court secretary, and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. So Hilkiah the priest and all those dudes went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. She said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people, listen church, for my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods. And I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place. It will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, concerning the message you just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord. It takes man When you heard what I said against this city and its people, that this land would be cursed and become desolate, you tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and buried in peace. You will not see the desire I'm going to bring to this city. So they took took her message back to the king. Bow your heads with me. Father, I'm not excited about your wrath, but I understand it. I understand the why. I understand its necessity. And I understand the eternal outcome from it. God, I said it earlier. There is a young man here that is struggling. God, whether he responds this morning or whether he just responds, just you and him, it's fine. But God, would you soften that heart so that he responds today? 
God, I pray that we as a church, with all of our faults, with, with all of our shortcomings, still worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, Lord give us a, a repentant heart and give us your strength as we leave here today to be that light for you, to be that evidence of you. I pray that as people see us, your creation, a new creation, that it will be undeniable that we have a stamp on us that says, made by God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Okay. Um, so, you know, we all, maybe by ignorance, are worshiping idols. Maybe we're just choosing to do it because we don't care. But guys, today we have got to put those down. We have got to humble ourselves before the Father. And we have got to be repentant, turn for our ways, and turn to Him. So today, if you're that guy, like, find me, find somebody, and let us introduce you to the Father who is drawing you here.